Now, the setting in the first few verses of chapter 15 is the church in Antioch, which was in Syria, north of Jerusalem. And there, a disagreement arose about the answer to the question, what is the true gospel? And those first five verses in chapter 15, if you'll turn there with me in your Bibles or turn in your bulletin and follow along, I think you'll be helped. Those first five verses we could say are the gospel of grace disputed. That's the first of three points this evening. The gospel of grace disputed. Look with me at the first two verses. They tell us a lot. But some men came down from Judea That's where Jerusalem was. And they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So there were some Jewish Christians who traveled from Jerusalem north to the church in Antioch, and they began to teach that you must be circumcised in order to be saved by Jesus. Later in verse 5, we learn that these men from Judea also said that you must keep the whole law of Moses as well in order to have your sins forgiven. Now, on the other hand, Paul and Barnabas preached that you need to repent of your sin and put faith in Christ in order to be saved, to have your sins forgiven. Now, what was the background to their disagreement? Why did they have a dispute? What caused that to happen? Well, Gospel Proclamation had created churches made up of some Jews, but mostly Gentiles throughout Cyprus and Asia, which is central Turkey today. Also, the church in Antioch was characterized by that, probably mostly Gentiles. And that happened through Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. We read about that in chapters 13 and 14. But the church in Jerusalem, the first church, the original church, was made up of mostly Jews who had turned to Christ in faith. The men and the women in these two different kinds of churches were dramatically different in ethnic and cultural and religious backgrounds, and that laid the groundwork for conflict. For well over a thousand years, Jews had been taught to obey the commandments that God had given to Moses. Those commandments included the Ten Commandments, for example, and many others written about in the first five books of the Bible, beginning with Genesis. Now, all of those laws in those books were to demonstrate to the world that God's people, the Jews, were different and that therefore their God, the living God, was different as well. He was different than the gods of all the pagans in the world. One of the key commands that set the Jews apart from the nations and the people around them was the command that God had given them for Israelite men to be circumcised. That was to happen on the eighth day of their life when they were an infant. Circumcision was the sign of the promise covenant that God had given to Israel in the Old Testament. It meant that you were officially part of the people of God. And if you didn't have it, you were to be cut off from the people of God. 
you would be cast out of Israel. It was first commanded of Abraham in Genesis 17. And it was also commanded in the law that God gave Moses, which is recorded in Leviticus chapter 12. Paul and Barnabas strongly opposed these teachers who came down from Judea. In fact, right around the time that this debate was happening in Antioch, and before the whole group of leaders went up to Jerusalem to settle the matter, Paul wrote his letter to the Galatian churches that we have in our Bibles in the New Testament because those churches as well were being infiltrated by Jewish Christians demanding that the Gentiles be circumcised in order to be saved. So it wasn't just happening there in Antioch of Syria. It was beginning to happen everywhere. Paul's position on the gospel couldn't have been clearer. Here's what he wrote in chapter two of his letter to the Galatians. He says, beginning in verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified, we could say forgiven, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now the debate began in Antioch but they couldn't resolve it there. Paul and Barnabas would not back down. And so the church in Antioch sent them all up to Jerusalem to consult with the apostles and the elders of the church there. And as they traveled, Paul and Barnabas stopped in multiple churches along the way. We read in these first five verses, and they reported in these different churches how the Gentiles had turned to Christ on their missionary journey. All of those churches, all the people in those churches rejoiced when they heard about how the Gentiles had come to faith. There was joy all around. Now when Paul and Barnabas got to Jerusalem, they were welcomed. And it says in the last part of verse four, and they declared all that God had done with them to the Jerusalem leaders and church members. But just like up in Antioch, The believers from the party of the Pharisees, these Jews took issue with Paul and Barnabas' gospel, and they said, that's not right. No, you must be circumcised and obey all of the Mosaic law to be saved. The stakes were high. If Paul and Barnabas were right, the uncircumcised Gentiles were saved, they were already redeemed, they were true followers of Christ whose sins were forgiven, and they did not need to be circumcised. But if the Pharisees were right, then those Gentiles were still lost in their sin. They were going to hell. They would be judged by God. And they must be corrected and taught a different gospel than what Paul had taught. Now, there are lots of things that we as Christians can compromise on with other Christians from different traditions. There are many things that Christians can have different preferences for and still agree on what is the true gospel. How can someone be saved? For example, hymns or choruses, it's not a gospel issue. Dressing up for church or dressing down for church, it's not a gospel issue. 
even over important theological questions like whether to baptize infants or not, even over those things we can agree to disagree and still call one another brother and sister in the Lord. If, if we agree on the gospel. But the gospel is not an issue to compromise about. The gospel is not something we can agree to disagree about. Paul and Barnabas had to stand firm. It was before this trip to Jerusalem that Paul had written to the Galatian churches about how important the true gospel was. The Jewish believers who proclaimed that you must be circumcised to be saved had made their way into those Galatian churches and Paul had written in Galatians, again I tell you, he says in chapter five, verses two through six, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. That means cut off from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. Those are strong words from Paul. Paul would not compromise on the gospel. This was the debate that had to be resolved Compromise was not an option. We too should treat others who have different, a different gospel, we should treat them with charity and kindness, but we must never compromise on a corrupted gospel. If a church preaches a false gospel, you should leave that church. If a partner in ministry disagrees about the gospel, you should break up that partnership. Paul wouldn't compromise with the Jews who demanded Gentile circumcision, and we shouldn't compromise when it comes to the gospel either. So the Antioch leaders gathered with the apostles and elders in Jerusalem to decide what the true gospel was. Was it a gospel of grace plus works or Paul's gospel of true grace? The second point this evening we can see in verses 6 through 21, and we can call it the gospel of grace decided. First, there was the gospel of grace disputed, and here we see the gospel of grace decided. These verses summarize here the debate before the council, and they include most of the decisive testimonies that were given. It began with, as it says in verse 7, much debate. And then it was followed by the testimony of Peter, a briefly summarized testimony of Barnabas and Paul, and then finally, James, the brother of Jesus, who was a key leader in the Jerusalem church. First, Peter, we see, give testimony in verses 7 through 11. Peter's testimony can basically be summarized by this, God orchestrated the Gentiles coming to faith. God orchestrated it. Peter's testimony focuses back on the Lord's sovereign plan and leading of him, almost forcing him to share the gospel with that Gentile named Cornelius that we read about back in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius would have been converted 10 to 12 years prior to this Jerusalem council. But this was Peter's key point. He knew that it was 
an important event in defining the true gospel. He basically testifies that Cornelius' conversion came entirely at God's direction. He essentially says, I didn't have much to do with it. He says in verse seven, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. It was God's choice. Both he and Cornelius had been brought together by an angelic visit and a stunning vision from the Lord. They didn't plan it, they didn't make it happen, God did. Second, he goes on to say that it was God who knows their heart because he gave them the Holy Spirit when they believed. Thirdly, he says that God made no distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles because he cleansed their hearts as well. And lastly, Peter calls the law of Moses a yoke on the neck of the disciples. In other words, it's a burden that people can't bear. His last statement is an important statement here in this chapter. Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. We're saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace alone with nothing added. Grace is unearned favor from God. Grace is free. It's free in the sense that we don't give anything in exchange for it. It was costly to Jesus, but it costs us nothing. Grace is something that you and I don't deserve. Grace is favor and love and mercy from God simply because he has decided to give it to us apart from anything that we've done. Grace is because he's decided to show favor. Grace is because he is loving and he is rich in mercy, not because of anything in you and I. Jerry Bridges writes in his book, Transforming Grace, The Bible never speaks of God's grace as simply making up our deficiencies as if salvation consists in adding some good works plus God's grace. Rather, the Bible speaks of a God who justifies the wicked, who is found by those who do not seek him, who reveals himself to those who do not ask for him. God goes and seeks people who don't seek him. He goes to people who don't ask for him. And he seeks to pour grace out on wicked people. That is grace, brothers and sisters. No other religion or faith reveals God as fundamentally gracious. Every other religion, in every other religion, God gives you what you deserve. Their gods give you what you deserve. Their God or their gods give you what you've earned, what you've worked for. Thank God we don't get what we deserve in the true gospel. We get pure grace from Jesus. We're sinners. Each and every one of us has fallen short of God's plan for us. We've disobeyed God in so many different ways. We can't even count them. We've done it in our actions. We've done it with our words. We've done it even with the thoughts we think. We are sinners. 
but we are also made in God's image. We're made in God's image and we're of great worth to him. In Christ, God is offering us grace, which means the forgiveness of our sins. If we repent of our sin and put our faith in Christ, we too will be given the Holy Spirit, just like Cornelius and every other Gentile after him who believed in Christ. We'll be, have our hearts cleansed, just like him. We'll be given salvation. Do you believe the good news? Have you put your faith in Jesus? You can do it this evening. There's nothing that you need to rush out that door and do to become a Christian. Simply decide to trust in Jesus. Simply acknowledge your sin before him and your great need. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He offers free grace. Brothers and sisters, are you tempted to add something to the true gospel of pure grace? as you define what it means to be saved? Are you tempted to add some work? Are you tempted to say to your friend who's not a Christian, well, you need to believe in Jesus and then you need to get baptized and then you'll be saved? Brothers and sisters, baptism doesn't save you. Do you say to people you need to join a church because being a member of the church will ensure that you're saved? No, church membership won't save you. Do you think that you need to read your Bible or pray for a certain amount of time every day so that God will approve of you? No, brothers and sisters, that's corrupting the gospel. The gospel is free grace from Jesus. Peter argued that the Lord orchestrated the Gentiles coming to faith. Well, the debate continued, and then Paul and Barnabas testified there, I believe it's in Verse 12, they testified that there were signs and wonders that had been performed by then when, when they preached the gospel on their missionary journey, and in doing that, they're arguing that God confirmed the true gospel. God confirmed it with miracles. And then last of all, James, the head of the Jerusalem church, spoke. And James's argument is basically this, the Lord prophesied it. So the Lord orchestrated it, the Lord confirmed it with miracles, and the Lord prophesied it in the scriptures. James was the half-brother of Jesus who had not believed in Jesus during his earthly ministry but had come to faith later and was now the senior leader in the Jerusalem church. His testimony begins with a reference to Peter's preaching about Cornelius coming to faith. He calls Peter by his Hebrew name, Simeon. And he says that Cornelius' conversion is evident, evidence that God has chosen those who put their faith in Jesus to be his very own people, along with the Jewish believers. And he argues that the Old Testament prophets agree. He goes on to quote from an Old Testament prophet, Amos, Chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, which says that God has promised to enable, quote, the remnant of mankind to seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Now, when James is referring to this verse and speaking about the Gentiles being 
God's very own people. He's using coded language to make his argument to primarily the Jews. In the Amos passage, he hears echoes of the Old Testament passages where the Lord is said to call Israel by my name. To be called by God's name is to be his people. And so James is saying that if God calls the Gentiles by his own name, then they don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to become Jews first before they believe in Jesus. They already are the people of God if they trust in Jesus. James concludes and he gives his judgment in verses 19 through 21. We're not to demand that the Gentiles become Jews, that they be circumcised and obey the Mosaic law to be saved. And then he gives four instructions that he does say should be given to the Gentiles and should be understood, I believe, as ways that the Gentile believers could live and worship together with Jews who had come to faith in Christ and who do observe the Mosaic commandments without offending them. These commandments for the Gentiles are there so that they could love their Jewish brothers and sisters in the church. These are not additional requirements for salvation, but ways for Christians from different cultural backgrounds to be respectful of one another. And what we see in all these testimonies here, especially in James's testimony, is that these leaders from the early church are teaching us how to read and understand our Bible, the whole Bible, the Old Testament and the New. They're teaching us that the gospel is the means of salvation, but the laws of God in the Bible describe the life of the saved. Did you hear that? The gospel is the means of salvation, but the laws describe the life of the saved. Now Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James are all in agreement that the gospel, the true gospel, is a gospel of grace alone. Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Nothing is to be added to that for salvation. To add to the gospel will result in the loss of the gospel. You know, it's a funny thing that with the gospel, addition actually leads to subtraction. Now with the decision made, came the need for the judgment to be made known. So we've seen the gospel of grace disputed, the gospel of grace decided, and in our final verses 22 through 35, we see the gospel of grace declared the gospel of grace declared. Now there was unity in the decision there in Jerusalem, verse 22 says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Two men, Judas and Silas, leading men, it says, are chosen to take an official letter back down to Antioch and there to go with Paul and Barnabas. Now, it's amazing that we even have the letter that they sent copied into our text. It was that important. Notice how it begins there in verse 23. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers 
who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. The Jewish Christians of Jerusalem make a significant statement of unity even in their greeting. They're calling the Gentile believers brothers. Anyone who believes the same gospel as us, we should be able to call a brother or a sister in Christ. Our skin color might be different. The food that we eat might be different. Social customs might be different. The language we speak might be different. The passports that we hold might be different. We might live under different forms of government in our countries. We might even vote differently. We might be from different tribes or different economic classes, from the highest to the lowest. But if we have the gospel in common, if we've trusted in Christ, we are members of the family of God together. And there's no room for prejudice, no room for racism, no room for hatred. Oh, brothers and sisters, will you be on guard? Will you be on guard for those little prejudices that crop up in your heart and your mind? There's probably not a person in this room that would say, oh, I think that being a racist is okay when you're a Christian. But those times that come along when we look down our nose at other people, when we say, I don't want to be a friend with that Christian over there because they're different than me. Oh, brothers and sisters, there's no reason to think that we ourselves are better than them. We are sinners saved by grace just like them. That's the great equalizer between us. And there's no reason to think as well that they are better than us or more important to God than us because of anything that characterizes them. True unity is unity in the gospel. Now the letter from the Jerusalem Council makes it clear that the Jews who were demanding circumcision and obedience to the law were not sent by the church. They weren't speaking for the Jerusalem church. The letter commends Paul and Barnabas for their sacrificial gospel ministry and affirms their leadership in the church in Antioch. And last of all, it lays out those four requirements that James had listed above that would help the Gentiles to respect Jewish believers in the church. Now, when this group of leaders reached Antioch, the church was gathered and the letter was read. Their response? Rejoicing and encouragement. Judas and Silas, who were both prophets of the Lord, stayed and taught in the Antioch church for some time. And Paul and Silas stayed even longer preaching the true gospel, building up the church, faithfully guarding the gospel through their teaching. And following gracious leadership led to the church being strengthened and blessed. That's true for us as well. I wonder if you noticed how often leaders were mentioned in this passage. Leaders in the church both leaders in Jerusalem and leaders in Antioch. Authority in the church is a gift from God given to certain people meant to protect 
and build up the church. That's the purpose of authority. The purpose of authority is to lead to spiritual flourishing. That's what godly authority leads to. An elder, as an elder and pastor in the church, that's what I want to see happen through my leadership. That's what we elders, the ones, the six that Jason prayed for earlier in his pastoral prayer, we elders want to see spiritual flourishing happen because of our leadership in the church. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Pray for us as elders that we would use the authority that God has given us to bless you as a church and to bless one another just like what happened in this passage. I wonder as well about the unnamed leaders that aren't even listed here in this passage. Through them as well as Paul and Barnabas and Peter and James and Judas and Silas, God used those leaders to protect the church from theological error. And that's one of our roles as elders in the church today, here in Covenant Hope Church as well. We as elders are charged primarily with shepherding and teaching the church. And we are committed to the true gospel first and foremost. We see that contained in our statement of faith. The true gospel is outlined in our statement of faith along with some other truths from the scripture. So we as elders are committed to teach within the boundaries of that statement of faith to protect and guard the gospel of pure grace. And also we're committed to teaching within the bounds of the Bible as well. We want to stay watchful that our teaching doesn't stray from the true gospel. But even here, even here in this passage, I wonder if you saw that the whole church had a role as well. In verse 3, the whole church sends the leaders from Antioch to Jerusalem to settle the matter. And when the apostles and elders in Jerusalem make a decision, it says the whole church seemed to affirm it in verse 22. And back then in Antioch, at the end of our passage, the church was informed and they rejoiced in the decision, indicating their affirmation as well. In our form of church government, the elders lead through teaching. Elders have authority in the congregation, but if we make errors, if we step out of line with our teaching, the congregation can overrule us. And so, brothers and sisters, you should be looking at your Bible when I teach you in any given sermon. When an elder teaches you, whether it's in a class online or class in person or one-on-one, -on -one, be reading your Bible to see that we as elders are teaching true Bible truths. You have a role. The congregation affirms our teaching as well. And God forbid if any of us elders should veer off track and begin teaching, teaching error you should call us to account. In our statement of faith or in our constitution, which is basically the rules for how we make decisions together as a church, 
To change our statement of faith requires a 75% vote from the congregation. There's no way that we six elders can huddle together in a back room and change our statement of faith. So you have responsibility as well, members of Covenant Hope Church. The gospel of grace alone and Christ alone for salvation is the most important part of our church's beliefs. And just like it was 2,000 years ago in the early church described in this passage, and you can see how important it is if you take a look at our statement of faith. Our statement of faith outlines the most important truths of the Bible, and it's like guardrails on a highway meant to keep cars from driving into the ditch on either side. There are 16 articles in our statement of faith, and nine of them, over half of them, have to do with salvation. That's how important we care about the true gospel. How a person can be saved is of greatest importance to us and the most unifying thing that we can hold to. You would do well to pull out the statement of faith. It's in your church directory. It's online on our website. And read through it carefully again. Make sure you understand it. Make sure that you know where it's rooted and taught in Scripture. Take seriously your responsibility as a church member. Now, different denominations debate what this passage teaches us about how the church should be governed There are many things present in the situation that are different now from our situation right now in history, 2,000 years later. We no longer have apostles chosen by Christ that we can go to and ask theological questions of. But at least we can say that the deciding factor in determining the definition of the true gospel in this passage hinged on the testimony of the apostles and those elders like James who had known Jesus. They're no longer with us, but we see their testimony as the highest authority in defining the gospel. And the way they speak to us today, the way that we can go to them today, is in their writings in the New Testament. All 27 books of the New Testament are our rule and our authority. They, those apostles and elders, were Jesus' chosen representatives and his appointed interpreters. And that's why Scripture is our rule and not the writings of anyone else or any higher church authority. If doctrine doesn't agree with the apostles' writings in Scripture, we're right to reject it. Now, there's nothing more important than getting the gospel right. The gospel of pure grace. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the great treasure of the church, the great treasure of every Christian. We must guard it to preserve the church. Without it, the church withers away. People can't truly be saved. We must guard it to strengthen the church. We're not just saved By the true gospel, we continue to grow day by day as Christians through the grace of Jesus. We must guard it to unify the church as well. The true gospel binds people together. You and I, from different walks of life, from different countries, from different economic classes, the true gospel saves, the true gospel helps us grow and strengthen, and the true gospel unifies. Praise God for the true gospel of grace.
Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this true gospel of grace. Thank you that it doesn't cost us anything. We simply need to repent of our sin and trust in the Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't understand that, it's confused in their mind, I pray that you would make it clear. Lord, for every Christian who's here who is tempted, like all of us, to add to the true gospel, I pray that you would guard us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.